0: Hey guys, welcome back to the Bad Chinese Teacher podcast. This is Patricia. This week, I sat down with my good friend April Jew to talk about her recent article for The Elephant on Sinophobia and the coronavirus. Both of these topics have been discussed to the point of exhaustion in recent months, including on this very podcast. But April's unique position as a Chinese-American, Nairobi-based journalist who fluently speaks three languages, English, Mandarin, and Swahili, brings to the table some new points to consider. Namely, what does anti-Chinese sentiment actually mean when Chinese people are the ones in power? Where do localized and derogatory but maybe not actually racist terms like chinku come from? And how do we reconcile with their actually racist and actually Western roots? And how is a person like April, a person with a Chinese face and name living in Kenya, supposed to feel about it all? I had such a great time catching up and picking the brain of one of the smartest people I know, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. If you've ever wondered what anti-Asian racism looks like in a place where Asians are the oppressors, this episode is a must-listen. Hope you enjoy it. So, you are back in Nairobi right now, right? How long have you been there since you got back from Beijing?
1: I got back here in mid-January. So at that point, things had started to really escalate in Wuhan, at least. Um, but it hadn't mm. really started becoming a thing here in uh, in East Africa or in Africa in general. Were
0: people even like talking about it at all while you were in Beijing in early January?
1: Oh, no. So what happened was I left Beijing right around Christmas, before Christmas last year. So this was not even in my, yeah, I didn't know anything about it. And then I went uh, home, went to a bunch of places in the U.S., traveled for about a month, came to Nairobi. And during that time, it had become a thing. So I have no idea. Yeah, I think there were starting to be rumors when I was in Beijing, but I wasn't really paying attention to it back then.
0: Mm. And then, so so a lot of what you've been hearing um, about the coronavirus has been through your reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're based in Nairobi, mm-hmm. um, and you're. F- area of specialty is um gender and urban inequality but i mean obviously with what's been going on i think you've always you've always written about like china and kenya um and that kind of uh, dynamic mm. <laughs> um how has that really changed since like you know is is coronavirus like basically all you are all here uh, right uh, y'all you've been writing about for is. like the past three months because it seems like that's literally the only bit, thing that like everyone's been talking about for the past three so i can't imagine like how how oversaturated your uh, your writing your your journalistic yeah. market must be right now.
1: Yeah, it's starting to get to me. I think. Um, well, my China Kenya stuff has in the past been limited by my grasp of Mandarin, which is the reason why I went to Beijing. Actually, was um, to attend an intensive Mandarin language program so that I could come back to Nairobi and begin reporting. Um, yeah, with. Fluency. Um, so yeah, in the past, I had been obviously still thinking about and sort of observing these changing dynamics between uh, the Chinese diaspora and Kenya and and Kenyans and all of these sort of um, big geopolitical movements, as well as smaller like cultural, social, demographic uh, like not tensions, but just happenings. Um, but then, yeah, this coronavirus thing just completely came out of left field. What it has done, though, is provided in some ways a um, it's kind of just like turned amped up everything in terms of China, Kenya, because, you know, like the and we can get more into this later when we talk about sort of nationalism and othering and uh racialized diseases but coronavirus has really just raised the stakes for all of and, and sort of like provided a like um i don't know it's sort of just like provided a totem like something people can see something that is of you know real uh, of real danger that people can sort of point to and then lump all mm. of these other grievances on which are many of these grievances are are very real um we can go into that in detail as well but it's just provided this um sort of central point on which everything then gets piled on and in that way it's an a very interesting lens to look at china kenya at the same mm. time it is uh yeah it has indeed consumed my life <laughs>
0: So can you give me a little bit of background information as to you're saying that like, you know, the coronavirus has now become somewhat symbolic of, you know, the I guess, would it be accurate to call it tension? Is that an understatement or an overstatement in terms of how China has kind mm. of its presence in East Africa, um, in Kenya, where you're at? What's kind of like a I know this is like basically a huge like mm-hmm. can of worms. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but like based on what you've seen, how long have you been in Nairobi? I've been in Nairobi for five years um, and three of those years. Have been as a journalist, right. Yeah, and so it's been really interesting because within just the span of five years, that landscape has changed dramatically. Um, When I first got there, it was sort of the... um, I mean, yeah, you would have... um, There were infrastructure projects. um, There were Chinese people. um, It was... Yeah, it was a thing. Um, But it's within the last five years that there has been a really strong bilateral political um I, I guess what's often seen as like a power imbalance um although i think that's mm. that's arguable um whether or not it really is whether or not it's beneficial to african states to you know Um, To get these infrastructure, uh, get these like injections of investment, blah blah blah. Like that's not the point. The point, for at least for me, is like the public narrative or like the public discourse. Mm. Um, In which case, if we are talking about Kenya, then the way that that is perceived is certainly one of imbalanced power, um, just bilateral debt, um, in terms of um, the sort of these really fast demographic changes, um, aka lots of Chinese people moving into, living in Nairobi, other parts of Kenya. Um, And so what often, what happens is not necessarily that all of these things are related. Um, For example, Lapset, uh, this giant, or not Lapset, um, the Lamukol plant, for example, or these um, sort of large shady, evil um, projects at the SGR, which was um, the railway that was funded and uh, or loaned, funded by Chinese loans, um, built by Chinese people, uh, Chinese corporations, and is operated by Chinese people. All of these sort of uh, disparate happenings, um, all sort of mix together or build into the same narrative and that narrative is one of um of invasion um or um you know uh, there's a neo-coloniality to it um right and so and this
0: isn't like limited to just kenya alone right now right this is like a kind of would it be accurate to say somewhat like pan-african sort of like um you know obviously as china's economy is evolving and they're Uh, looking to kind of move away from you know what China looked like what 30 40 years ago Mm -hmm. Um, how does that look like on the ground what kind of you said that there have been lots of people who have been moving to China I imagine that Mm -hmm. not all of them are just like straight up like you know businessmen who are just temporary transplants Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, what does is there a Chinese diaspora in uh, where you're living right now Mm -hmm. and what does that look like what kind of people are moving over
1: yeah so in terms of kenya versus other countries at least in east africa it is very different um or at least i think the political economy the political situation in kenya is unique just because of the debt um the debt situation i believe mm. 70% of uh kenya's bilateral debt is to china and these mega projects are in large part funded by chinese corporations so the sort of um the debt diplomacy which is has been refuted as sort of like a, a you know yeah I, I don't want to get into the details of whether or not that's really mm-hmm. happening but certainly in the mind and like yeah like when i said public discourse that is the political backdrop for everything that is happening that is the political backdrop then for the second part of your question migration um there you know Uh, contractors, Chinese contractors are the ones who are putting up the buildings. Um, It's just this sort of, uh, like, it's a very visual thing. The presence is just, the Chinese presence is just everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, You Mm. will now have, um, for example, um, lots of little quote-unquote Chinatowns popping up in Nairobi. Um, Chinese schools um outside of the confucius institute just like sort of cultural centers um the yeah lots of chinese restaurants of course and um it's just sort of this uh yeah i think if from the point of view of someone who has lived who would have lived in nairobi for many years you would just see this like you would take visual cues from the way that your city is changing around you that there are a group of people more or less moving in
0: (laughs) i visited you in nairobi twice Mm -hmm. and i think that was both of those times were ever before were before i ever even visited china i remember thinking so i had gone to go yeah yeah, so like um i visited you in 2017 2018 and then the summer of 2018 i went to china for the first time not like not fancy china like western china (laughs) Um, like, very, like, mid-sized city that, like, no mo- no self-respecting foreigner would want to vacation in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what, what struck me most about, like, because I had gone to China kind of expecting that it would basically be aesthetically a lot like Taiwan. And I mm. remember, like, stepping into the city and being like, this looks familiar but not because it resembles any any other asian city it was because like i had recognized not yeah. necessarily like the sort of kenyan infrastructure but like all like when you said that like, yeah. the chinese presence in oh, in nairobi so is like overwhelming it's exactly that yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even down to an aesthetic level, it was like Western China, when like lesser developed cities when they're not really trying to like, you know, make anything look super mm-hmm. fancy or impressive for like foreigners. Yeah, yeah. Um, that same aesthetic just from that level alone, I was just so struck by that. Yeah. Um and I remember like see, hearing from other folks as well that like uh, who had also visited other East African countries that like the Chinese president is just like you
1: can't it's it can't be overstated. Yeah. Well, um exactly how it, it is that's so interesting because I had sort of an Uh, a similar but um, almost opposite uh, reaction to going to Chinatown in New York City when I was there in January. I did Mm. not feel like Chinatown resembled China at all. And like, duh, it's like the US, whatever. But it was also so, I mean, some parts of it had been frozen. So like traditional characters, um, for example, were Mm. like, uh, had been frozen and yeah it was almost like um like a bunch of different ice cores you know when you like take an ice core and you see like it captures like what the air was like at that time when it froze and then Mm. you can sort of like it was like a whole bunch of different kinds of ice cores where like this is obviously like from uh Guangdong this part is Taiwanese but or in this part is like mainly mainland but this part is newer this part must be older than even, uh, simplified Mandarin, like, you know, so it was, Mm. and, and it's much more diasporic in that way. And then, um, in Nairobi, like you said, and I think in other places where the sort of footprint, the like very recent footprint of the Chinese diaspora, mainland Chinese diaspora is, it has a, yeah, it, it has a different, um, it it feels different and it's probably I mean, I don't know if it's for sure, but this would be an interesting thing to explore if that like first stage of succession, that like first touch of a of diaspora within a new country tends to if mm-hmm. they're all sort of cut from the same cloth, you know, and they all sort of resemble one another.
0: Yeah, it's it feels a little bit like walking into a time capsule, I feel. Yeah. So, like, I remember...
1: Were we together during, when, when we were in Chinatown uh,
0: together? We York, were, but I didn't know
1: if in, I okay. <laughs> could I disclose remember, that on I'm, the podcast. I don't remember, because I was thinking
0: about that, too. I was just like, was this... No, it's okay. We were literally January, right next to each other. whatever. Yes, I was talking By the <laughs> way, we should probably mention that, like oh my gosh we should probably mention that like we know each other from like college and so so there's there's subtext to all of this but yes we were hanging out in chinatown that is that is that is the backdrop for for that for that past bit but but yeah no i mean well it's funny because i i I ask because like i grew up near new york and so new york chinatown was something that like um and, and i feel like new york chinatown culture kind of spills over a little bit to connecticut uh, you know, mm. Chinese diaspora culture to an extent, uh, not fully. Um, but I got that same. F- same feeling when I was in San Francisco in um, in September mm-hmm. and visiting San Francisco Chinatown, which is like legendary mm-hmm. and realizing that like number one, yes, it does not feel like anything distinctly Chinese mm-hmm. at all unless you're counting mm-hmm. like 1920s America like it's very yeah. like more has that like America- early 20th century Americana feel than anything mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it does feel like walking into a, a time capsule and then seeing how like this is where the drop off point was yeah. and then that's how the culture has evolved over the past like 100 years Years, essentially, mm-hmm. um, So, oh, my goodness. Yeah, super interesting stuff. And seeing like, I've always I'm always so intrigued by like how different versions of Chinese diaspora look in different places, yeah. if only because I'm realizing exactly how America centric uh, my experience has been. I feel like a lot of Asian Americans are equally guilty of this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then enter you and you obviously, again, uh, you know, being a writer in Nairobi, having done so for the past three years it's a, i imagine like you know in a lot of ways what you do makes a lot of sense and yet you know probably also raises a lot of questions um, you know amongst the people that you meet as in like why is a chinese american woman uh, living in Nairobi, speaks fluent Swahili, by the way, guys. Really <laughs> impressive. Um, and then does all this writing on a very crucial topic um, that's impacting not only just, you know, East Africa, but also China. How did you find yourself doing all of this? Like, why, how did you find this, like, you know, what seems to me like a perfect intersection as a writer, that perfect niche that really needs someone to, to, to speak into right now. But how did you find yourself here?
1: That's a really interesting question, because if I'm to be completely honest... I first decided to go into writing um, when I had first moved to Nairobi. I was a product designer and did a short stint in painting as well. But I did not feel like there was a reason for me to be a journalist in a country with plenty of uh, brilliant and excellent Kenyan reporters and journalists. Um, So I kind of just like pattered, pitter-patter around and just like live my life until this issue really uh sort of came to came to the fore on its own i think actually in the beginning um and and i think this is quite important as well i did not want necessarily to be the china kenya person um, I'm mm. still not like, by all means, any kind of expert. Um, I didn't want to be that kind of person because I had this, um, well, I mean, why? I don't, I don't know if I can explain that, but I had internalized that I am an American. I am, yes, a Chinese American, but I'm an American who came here and, um, you know, decided to become a writer because I wanted to write about interesting phenomena in Kenya. And like, isn't that enough? Like, why do I need to be pigeonholed mm-hmm. into being the Chinese, the the China Kenya person just because I'm Chinese? Um, mm-hmm. For the longest time, while I was in Kenya, at least in the beginning, I had always had this kind of distance between myself and other and Chinese people from mainland in Kenya um, for. Yeah, for different reasons, obviously a lot of that was just language barrier um and it was always kind of shameful to me that my swahili was more fluent than my chinese was that just like was a, mm. like a pain point <laughs> in my life. <laughs> but I think there wasn't it never clicked. Um what didn't click? Well, I think the best way is to explain story from around last year when I, I guess it's technically the first real China Kenya, quote unquote China Kenya uh, piece that I reported Um, I was, it was the it was a piece for the South China Morning Post magazine um, about Jehovah's Witnesses in Nairobi in Kenya that were learning Mandarin in order to be able to preach um, to evangelize to the Chinese diaspora here Um, so I was I was going to churches um there was one point that I was walking on the street um and there was uh this was on my way to church walking to church Sunday morning um and on the street there was this small uh little chinese family just a mom a dad and their daughter and they had their um like Nakumot shopping bags, the, like big grocery bags, um, and she was just in between them, holding their hand. She was maybe like, maybe like five or six, I think. Um, and she had just like way too many ponytails. Like there were, just, it was just like <laughs> braids everywhere. And she was wearing like a turtleneck, and like also more layers on top. And like the turtleneck was like tucked into leggings, and like the leggings were her pants. And for some reason, it was only until then that it dawned on me that, like, wait, that's what I look like when I was five. <laughs> like, that's how my parents dressed me. <laughs> I went to school in leggings and, like, many layers <laughs> yes. and, like, asymmetric oh ponytails. Goodness. Like, that girl is yes. me. Like, I was an immigrant, just as she is. We are not separate. Like, we are at the same level of diaspora, right? I'm not in any way, like, doubly removed from from her you know, and I think mm. that once I made that like fundamental switch um, and of course it helped to be also in Beijing and I learned a lot while I was there as well, once I made that fundamental switch that if I am beholden to any sort of nation um, it's it's not going to be China it's not going to be the US For in a lot of complicated ways the nation that I feel drawn to um beholden to in any way is that of diaspora um and there's mm-hmm. so much that I share in common with mainland chinese people uh mainland chinese migrants to kenya um mm. once i yeah once i made that like intuitive switch in my mind i guess sort of like an identity um and i an identity like some form of resolution in my identity Mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. i was able to yeah um it, it made sense and i want to be in that space of, yeah covering mm. um covering china kenya being that person um, it's not from a sense of being pigeonholed. Like, I have to write this because, or I have to write about this because I'm the only one who knows all three languages and I have a Chinese face, so I ought to do it. It's from a place of mm. um, of genuine interest and of, yeah, and, and of identity.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like, I'm just reading, uh, I'm skipping ahead a little bit because I'm. we're talking here about the article that you recently wrote for The Elephant, um, which we'll talk about in greater detail in a second. But you had mentioned um, in that article your experiences uh, being in a Chinese
1: church. Uh, which
0: are there many of those in Nairobi, like Chinese immigrant churches,
1: um, or is there just like, a rough a one? count? I would say there are around. Well, like uh, congregations, not all of them are like I don't mm. know if any of them have their own building, but congregations wise, I'd say around five ish um maybe oh, wow. some small groups as well that meet in homes gotcha. like house churches yeah
0: and so the way that you had described that uh that church experience um i feel like we've had a conversation yeah. about this probably sometime in the past but like there's something about chinese church chinese immigrant <laughs> church that like no matter where you are in the world it will aesthetically always all look the, the same. same always feel the same <laughs> like the like the the powerpoint slides that like are in like oh the wrong colors and then They're just like, terrible the text design is aligned yeah 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 no i mean like i <laughs> it's so funny because like when i started working at like my christian school and then i saw all like my kids go to like these like basically hill song mini churches and i'm just like this is not my why is y- why are y'all so fancy yeah you know um and then like <laughs> And then so because knowing my knowing my upbringing in a Chinese immigrant church and then like the summer when I was in Hong Kong, I mean, Hong Kong, you would feel like, you know, again, in the Chinese speaking space, you'd be like a little more lost. No, it's the same. It's like, no, it's like PowerPoint, like the the (laughs) microphone feedback, like all of that, you know. Um, And so I just love like in the article that like, you know, you had gone to you've been going to these churches ever since the uh, or this church ever since the coronavirus uh, Mm -hmm. breakout. Um, in a kind of search for home kind of search for the familiar and I think I I have that in common as well feeling like you know your upbringing my upbringing as I imagine is yours as well um, spending so much time so much time in church Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. to the point where like you you just naturally associate that kind of Mm -hmm. that kind of feeling that kind of place with uh, with the familiar Mm -hmm. um, even if it is something as physically as far removed as being on like a Literally a different continent. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's talk a little bit about that article now. Um, So this article was published in The Elephant Mm -hmm. a couple of days ago? We, last week, uh, maybe um, like a week loved yeah. it I think you had sent me like a a, a preliminary outline uh, of it before it was published mm-hmm. and I was just reading there was just so much mm-hmm. um, because there is so much for I, I think given your position and posture in Kenya mm-hmm. as well as how things just seem to be developing so quickly and yet like the conversation about uh, you know disease <laughs> and then also like xenophobia, it feels so familiar you know, it, it feels like we mm. could have had this conversation probably three weeks ago. I'm not sure yeah. how much would really have changed, yeah. right? Even though, like, the, the, the disease obviously is spreading and, like, on a scientific level, things are constantly changing. Yeah. Um, but it really seems like, I remember when I did this uh, the episode on coronavirus a couple of weeks back, it really just, all the rhetoric mm. just seems to be circling back to, like, you know, early, uh, late 19th century, you know, Chinese immigrants you know, the, oh God, the yes. ghettos, quote unquote, that, you know, like yeah. the idea that like Chinese people were eating rats and were diseased yeah. and it was unclean yeah, and yeah, all of yeah. that. And I'm just like, literally, we had this conversation in yeah. 1986, you know. Yeah. Um, but let's talk a little bit about that article. What what was the impetus for like, um, you know, coming forward with something that just really laid it out there in terms of, um, you know, xenophobia mm. with reference to uh, East Africa in particular?
1: Mm. Well, I think people are interested in that, right? Like that's like a, an obvious question is okay well xenophobia is happening in you know in Europe in North America in uh you know in different ways in parts of Asia as well what about places where there like for example with SARS there weren't that many like this wasn't it was completely different there wasn't a huge mm. um diasporic footprint in East Africa or I mean anywhere in Africa really so this is like a in some ways it's happening for the first time. Um, And there must be, like, people want to know, like, you know, how do Chinese people in Kenya um, experience xenophobia? After I wrote the piece, a lot of people, um, like, media people also reached out about getting more information about this. Um, So it's, it's like, people want to know. Mm. Um, I wanted to write that story that reported feature that objective uh pen and pad and hand talking Mm. to a Chinese person like how do you feel about being Chinese in Nairobi and like (laughs) I could not it felt stupid it was impossible for me to write without putting myself in it because, I mean, well, first of all, if you you can't not talk about the real grievances that Kenyans, um, especially everyday Kenyans, have against. China in all its forms um China like as one word being sort of an unfair way to lump together Chinese people Chinese corporations uh the Chinese government CCP um the the Chinese Communist Party like all those things get lumped together but like you know there are real grievances there are real ways in which um you know China's um presence in Kenya is colonial um so to tell a Sinophobia story without any of that just, like, first of all, seemed uh, seemed a bit, not irresponsible, but at the very least, it wouldn't actually capture what's really happening, which is a really complex and weird thing. Um, and in order to co- to capture that complex and weird thing, I realized, as I was struggling to write this, that I had to write in first person. Um, which was something mm-hmm. that was much more difficult than I had ever expected. Um, much, dif- very difficult to do in a way that is vulnerable and honest. Um, and so, what I did was—I mean, I guess I really just gave glimpses into how I've been seeing all this as someone like I said before, who's been here for not that long, but long enough to see how things have changed within five years. Someone who speaks, um, all three languages, Swahili, English, and, uh, and Mandarin. How do I see this? What am I struggling with? And why does it all like, why does it feel so bad? (laughs) Um, and that's really what this essay is about. It's not, um, it's not in any way like, you know, uh, all of the church, all the people in it, are sort of nameless. It um, sort of gives a glimpse into the the ways in which um, in in which sinophobia plays out. But at the very end, there's no there's no real answer. It's I guess the the glimpse itself, being able to um, see what having to manage your life against other people's gazes, what other people think you represent, what that does to. Individuals and to a community.
0: Yeah, I think what I found so um, refreshing about your piece is obviously, I mean, the authenticity kind of speaks for itself because, you know, because of how personal it is. Um, and also in the backdrop of like how, with something like coronavirus, all, a lot of like the media discussion on it just tends to be very hot takey, which is. Mm. I think understandable considering that like when you kind of take, you know, when you put China as the face of literally a disease, mm-hmm. it's really easy to just draw really simple, quick conclusions um, without looking at the nuance. And yet, right in a place like, you know, like Kenya, where you have this tension of like, on the one hand, um, there is this very like, you know, very visible racism, xenophobia against Chinese people. And yet there is this sort of like colonialist um, dynamic in place. Um, I was just kind of scrolling through as Mm. you were talking and thinking and you mentioned the Lamu Lamu coal plant Mm. as one of like um, one kind of instance where uh, folks were able to kind of, you know, you said organized to defeat the coal plant and ultimately did, which like there drew, f- therefore drew, uh, drew from a form of repulsion, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so like you had ended that phrase with saying the remedy to sinophobia is not sinophilia; It is nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? Cause that seems like a case yeah. that seems, you know, having it being highlighted in this article, yeah. seems like somewhat an unusual sort of approach or unusual sort of response to, you know, what typically happens within that, that dynamic.
1: Yes. Um, that is so important just because I feel it. I mean, the fact that you even need to um, you know, sort of vocalize, the fact that Sinophobia is, its opposite is not Sinophilia, I think is representative of the fact that with China, I, I want to say especially with China, people feel the need to take sides. Um, and I I sense mm. this, by, you know, through the way that, you know, if I mentioned, first of all, that I covered China, Kenya stuff, it's one of two, you, you get a sense that people fall into one of two camps, like pro and anti. And that is, um, I mean, inaccurate and problematic for obvious reasons. But it also, I don't, well, it also obscures ways in which people could actually, in productive ways, resist. Um, I think there should be a caveat, is that Kenyan citizens feel that they have very little agency over any Mm. of this. Um, At the moment, there's no, just because of Kenya's uh, domestic politics, there's no real um, opposition... Um, which I also mentioned in the article. And what that means really is that there is no uh, political section that is broadly anti-China. Um, yeah. What you have instead is, like I said before, these sort of um, public anxieties, which I think are heightened by the fact that people don't feel like they can do anything about this. People didn't have really a choice to... to. Uh, do the sgr to like let this railway be built Mm. um let alone of course you know pay uh just way too much for this uh for this railway to be built taxpayer money being wasted blah 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 um and so people often feel like they have no control over this you know these like um these events whether that is a mega project um some kind of infrastructure thing or just the like presence of chinese people in the case mm. of the lamu coal plant um in short this was a coal plant that was meant to be built by a chinese company um whose name i can't remember right now and in the process of that coal plant being built um i mean barring there are you can uh, look up any work by decolonize um D-E and then C-O-A-L, the coal lanais, which is one of, and also save Lamu, which were some of the organizations that were at the helm of resisting this coal plant, which would not only introduce uh, coal as like a major uh, source of energy in Kenya that doesn't really need that, Mm. also coal is bad, um, but would actually require uh, at least in initial stages importing coal from South Africa. it was just a nonsensical project, and many people believe that it was part of this um, effort on china's part to sort of outsource its coal um, it's It's coal production it's coal producing uh, needs to outside of its country so that it could uh, you know on paper lower the amount of coal related activities within the country, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, it was, Mm. it was like this giant evil, bad thing, um, that would destroy, uh, local, um, communities. Um, uh, sort of, it was, it was sort of, they steamrolled over any kind of community, um, opposition or, um, or, or interests. And yeah, in, in this sort Mm. of, in a familiar fashion, um, in the sort of similar way that Chinese, these large Chinese corporations, as they make deals with um, Kenyan government entities do, which is that they sort of do the deal first, um, don't really ask anyone, use taxpayer money, um, don't do like a proper um, impact assessment before and sort of just steamroll and uh, steamroll mm. over any kind of opposition, whether that's from local communities or advocacy groups. Um in this case, in the Lamu coal plant case um they these community organizers, these activists won um, and it was i mean in that one word, it's like a, you know years and years hmm. of work and like really um incredible organizing and um coordination. But um, this was earlier last year, I believe um, there was a, I can't remember if it, I want to say it's the, um, actually, I I don't know which court it was. But there was a ruling that this would, that this plant would not be allowed uh, to be built, um, blah, 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 blah. The important thing is that they won, um, at least for now. And in the process... They were able to separate out they they fought this battle without um nationalizing or ethnicizing this the big evil. You know, like it was mm-hmm. I was like, well like the big evil really is, you know um neoliberalism or or just uh coal or you know, you can make it that. But they did not mm-hmm ethnicize that problem if they had i don't think they would have been very um very successful Mm -hmm. um yeah and so that but that's a particular project right it's a very local example it would be unfair for me to hold that up as an example of how you know of how kenyans should resist um because that just it doesn't work that way um that would not work perhaps for SGR or that kind of a like, and there were people who were um, resisting SGR and all sorts of other projects that other forms of the, and, and mm. all, you know, points of this process. But that example was just one in which, um, yeah, I guess maybe it is making a quite obvious point, which is that if you want to fight something, you have to be clear, um, clear eyed about what it is about that. That is, worth fighting against what about it is evil what about it is bad Um, Mm. and when you allow um, ethnicity or race or nation to obscure that and sort of flatten this complicated like in this case the Lama coal plant is this like complicated mega project um, when you allow yourself to flatten that to just Chinese and then you Mm. you know push back on fight Chinese then like that is one ineffective and two will cause a lot of collateral damage along the way whether that's xenophobia or you know or anything else Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I think it's
0: I think nuance is something that is a really high expectation for a lot of, for most people, you know, mm-hmm. and, and again, to like look back at like how, again, um, not just this, but also, you know, as we're talking about the coronavirus um it just it's a med- it's an act of mental expediency hmm. uh to kind of you're attach so right. you know mm-hmm. just because it's, it's just right in front of you right yeah. and it's and it's a thing that like kind of tugs at like the the animal part of part of our brains mm-hmm. um and 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 it, it, we just naturally gravitate towards that um but yeah you're right in the sense that like you know with something as as specialized as this particular circumstance with the lamu coal plants it's not as if it's not as if like that um can be replicated in every single circumstance, and yet like you wish you it could, you know like if, if only mm. because like it feels like I don't know at least for me it seems like a much more like honest um nuanced uh sort of approach to to a, a problem that necessitates that. um but yeah, I mean as we're as we're looking again, you know to what's happening in the world right now. Um, and seeing, again, China being this face of, like, basically this global evil, this disease. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd be interested to see, you know, again, you know, what... I don't think we've talked yet about, like, on the ground, what what are Kenyans saying about, you know, China and then coronavirus? There aren't any cases of uh, coronavirus in Kenya right now, although there have been in, like, northern Africa? Have there, like, you know, is is there Um, any sort of, like, you know, geographical proximity fear amongst Kenyans now? And then also, mm. you know, how has that really impacted the conversation about, you know, Kenya, China, racism, mm-hmm. those things?
1: Well, this is actually really good. I haven't checked the, you know, I've been checking every single day. Um, I know that earlier mm. today, the second confirmed case in South Africa was um, confirmed. Um, and I believe there also have been confirmed cases in Cameroon, Togo, um, and Al- Algeria, Nigeria, um Mm -hmm. but none in East Africa. I may be missing some, but so far none in East Africa. Um, This is actually a really good, uh, you know, opportunity to point back to the last point I was trying to make, because in the majority, Mm. the vast majority of these um, cases, they've been Europeans um, who have, were infected with coronavirus, um, traveled to African countries, and then were confirmed. So, um, this is something that uh, Nairobi based political analyst Nanjala Nyabola had brought up on Twitter a while back. Um, it's also something that uh, Kenyan journalist Patrick Gathara has written about on Al Jazeera um, recently, which is that, um, it, not explicitly in this way, but the sort of uh, the theme is that if you allow sinophobia if you allow like you know uh this fear of chinese people bringing in the virus because coronavirus you know in that view is a chinese disease really if you allow that to be your logic then you actually miss you objectively leave yourself more vulnerable to the actual threats like you know this is mm. it's not the, you know the opposite of like xenophobia is not like oh let's you know go out of our way to embrace chinese mm-hmm. people it's like no this is mm-hmm. a disease and like in science <laughs> epidemiology yeah. so like yeah. it, in that way yeah it obscures the way in which you could actually solve the problem in a more efficient way
0: yeah, I think that was my initial reaction as well when I did that episode a couple weeks back. Yeah. I was just like literally scrolling through Twitter and reading through like <sighs> reactions cuz I think the one thing, yeah, the one thing that like really bo- has bothered me about like, I don't know, we could I think we could this could open up a discussion about like just how Asian Americans as well like, you know, mm. deal with xenophobia. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Um but the thing that struck me about like reading through those tweets from like non from like basically white people was uh, like woke white people were basically saying that like, you know, the uh, like, don't be racist against Chinese people. You know, China has done nothing wrong don't criticize the Chinese government. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, there's so much to criticize, though. Um, And I'm saying that as, like, an ethnically Chinese person. And so, you know, it's... Again, I feel like it just goes back to that, like, you know, whenever we're we're hit with, like, a cognitively challenging topic, it very much just turns into, like, a pro-con, you know? Like, it's kind of like you either, you know, all in um, when you're in your anti-Chinese racism or you just, like, try to overcompensate. And I wonder how much of that is, like, just performative. You know, especially for folks who are just, like, so... Mm. I don't know, have never spoken to an actual Chinese person before mm. in their lives. You know, like that sort of thing. I f- I sound super bitter in saying all this, but it's, I feel like it's mostly because I feel like I'm caught in this tension mm-hmm. um, yeah. of not knowing how to like, number one, feeling like, you know, the 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 popular thing. Um, is to take sides, yeah, uh, because you know, because it just seems like you know everyone will always view like want to compartmentalize you in one of those two camps, right? Um, so it makes it, it, it easier for them to process your 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 posture in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you're just kind of like you know, I don't know, maybe also speaking as a as a Taiwanese person. Mm-hmm. Um, Taiwan has its own, you know, set of beef with yeah. the, the PRC and, right. and being identified as being part of the PRC. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all, all of that kind of ties its up itself up into the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's such a conversation that requires nuance. And yet, with like, again, folks who are not, I don't know, I feel like you of all people are have the one of the most personalized experiences with Um, Sinophobia, because I, I can see through your pieces that it's something that you encounter on a daily basis. I think you mentioned in the article that, like, um, when you had first started tweeting about this, like your your replies were just like your mentions were just littered with all sorts of garbage. Um, and yet you were like, this doesn't bother me anymore. And I can just think of the number of like Asian Americans
1: called Corona. now. that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: And like and I guess to a point, it's like, you know, being desensitized. But, you know, how much of that still feels palpable to you? On I, I imagine like getting, you know snake emojis in your in your mentions is not a it's not a fun thing regardless <laughs> <That's true. laughs> but like how does that look like for you now having been in Kenya for for so long and having xenophobia basically be part of your day-to-day for for so long
1: um my gut reaction is to tell myself that I don't have a right to cry about that. Like, it's not that bad, Mm. you know? It's, uh, and I think that has to do with, like, my own class privilege and an understanding of what China means to, yeah, of what what basically my face represents to the people who, like, you know, call Mm. me chinku or corona on the streets or tell me to go home, you know? Which, Mm. and that's, like, a really weird position to 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 be in um i sort of this didn't make it into that essay but i will be writing on this eventually this word in Sheng. so Sheng is um i mean in its most literal definition a mixture of swahili and english uh, but it's so much more than that it's this sort of shape-shifting um street vernacular um particular to nairobi that blends in also words from Hindi from ethnic languages, zoluul, kikamba, kikuyu blah 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 um, and it's it's like constantly evolving constantly changing words are changing meaning and it's per, it's like this um uh, the medium of you know uh, of, of Kenyan hip hop and other arts of resistance, I guess that you can say mm. um. And there's this word in Shang that I've been following for some time because it is the word that I get called uh almost every day which is chinku and like it is not usually meant it is usually meant to be some sort like it's meant to be like kind of derogatory um the original meaning of the word uh before it started to be used on people on Chinese people was chinku is like a is like a cheap made in china thing like the word sort of came wow. out in the uh in the 90s when um these made in china goods started uh flooding kenya's markets and so you would say like oh like this is a this phone is like cheap and really bad um and eventually it became uh it moved to start being, to referring to Chinese people as well. Um, And, and this is like a long explanation, but I'll get there eventually. Uh, What took me a while to realize was that, first of all, um, Kenyans were using this word, but they didn't know that it sounded like, or may have come from the word chink, which is like the N word for Asians in America like in the you know in the 1800s late 1800s Mm. early 1900s around the time that um Chinese immigrants first started coming into the U.S. at the same time uh Chinese nationals who have you know lived in mainland China for their whole lives and have never been in diaspora almost certainly also don't know what that word means like that word is is a is a racist word (laughs) it exists in Mm. um in a society where Chinese people are an ethnic minority with not very much power um and like Mm. are trying to be excluded um or are and are excluded are in a society that is trying to exclude them so every day you have this word chinku that like sounds like chink that's just being thrown around in the airwaves and like I hear it (laughs) I hear in that frequency, I hear in that Asian American frequency where I know what it means mm. to be called a chink. I also know that like, um, you know, that things are complicated and there is like a neocoloniality to all of this. And so Kenyans are responding to that in, in this way and they don't know where the word comes from and that, you know, that that's there. But it also still stings. To be called mm-hmm. a chink, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's like a very. Yeah. Um, I describe it in in this essay that I'm still writing as like oftentimes if I even just hear the ch- like whether it's Ching Chong or or Chinku or China, um, I like twitch first. I describe I, I in the th- this essay I'm writing now about Chinku, I describe it as in uh, an Asian American twitch, a sort of. A hypersensitivity mm. a learned hypersensitivity to the fact that my yellow was showing like we growing up in the U.S. have been conditioned in a way to be super sensitive about not super sensitive just you know reasonably sensitive about um about racial exclusion or those sorts of that's not even a dog whistle just like slurs <laughs> um but mm-hmm. it's weird for me now to be in a place where I know that uh you know Chinese people as a group hold a lot of power in, you know, in whether symbolic ways or economically in terms of class and things like that. Um, mm. And at the same time, uh, yeah, though both those things have to be true. That, yes, I am complicit in some way or that, you know, Chinese people, the Chinese diaspora is complicit in this uh coloniality of this invasion and at the same time like it really hurts <laughs> to be called corona mm. on the street you know to be Trey, called chinku right? every day yeah and yeah. you have to hold all of those things at once i don't think this is yeah i don't think this is um unique to my experience i think that in the complex combinations of uh of race ethnicity place distance from home types of what even is home like i think all of us have to deal with this with these um and also like um sexual orientation and class all of these ways in which um mm. power sort of combine and interact and negate in strange ways we have to we have to get better at holding multiple things true at once mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like just looking. I know that you're an incredibly just thoughtful and emotionally strong person. Having, because, and I say that because, you know, obviously because I know you, but also because, like, I imagine that, like, you know, what we call microaggressions within like the uh, the American, the Westernized Mm. social context is like, you know, that I feel has become so much part of the you know, the the lived in experience of so many, quote unquote, oppressed people, Mm -hmm. um, to the point where it seems like microaggressions in themselves are in themselves debilitating, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then so to look at your circumstance and to say, well, it doesn't matter how the power dynamics are in Kenya. And it doesn't matter that people who look like me are the ones who are um, holding power here. um, But I'm hurt by that, you know, like I, mm. I, I feel, you know, like I, hearing the, the ch of the of mm. whatever slur or perceived slur is, is to is, is, is succeeds that mm-hmm. doesn't change how you feel. Right. Mm. Um, And I and I wonder how much like, you know, is how wh- what gets you to that point? Is it just like a cognizant recognition of like, well, you know, I'm Chinese in a country where Chinese people hold power is therefore I can't have my precious feelings hurt that easily or is it just again a matter of just like getting used to it you know i feel like maybe mm-hmm. i wonder how 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 accurate the parallel would be for like white allies who like understand their i don't think like the the white privilege paradigm works quite as well here i don't really think that the two link up like you know exactly mm-hmm. yeah. um but like i wonder how You know, like as a white person in the U.S., you're constantly confronted with your own privilege. Um, And then if someone like makes, I don't know, some like off color Mm. white person joke, it still kind of stings. I I assume not being a white person wouldn't know. Um, But like, you know, the emotional side of things, it doesn't it doesn't matter like the like it still hurts. And how do you how do you kind of cope with that?
1: And men, too. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Men, uh, people of a higher class, uh, white people. People, the right. dominant right. religion within a society, um, where some, where there one might mm-hmm. have more power than the other. This is the question of punching up versus punching down. When you punch up, you are mm-hmm. punching at, making fun of, or um, I don't know, in some way poking at, um, disturbing a group of people that has more power as a group over other groups of people um punching down is when you are doing the opposite when you are actively hurting someone who already doesn't have power within the system you are exercising your power over them and that is why this china kenya thing is so interesting because chinku whether or not it comes from the word chink um chinku and all of the accompanying words around it that i for example am called on the street um chinku ching chong china uh, corona these sorts of things these are words from a language a reservoir of tropes and images from white racism right these are um they don't they didn't come out of a vacuum they weren't generated out of nothing here in Kenya. These were i mean these were things that came from i mean it ought to be studied more where exactly they have come from here in East Africa, but they've come from images um they've come from literature uh film perhaps um things that the people have taken their cues from something or not even taking their cues from it's not as if they um you know are that this is a mirror of white supremacy in any way it's more an indication that we need to understand that now in this world our modern world a world with internet a world with um just migration at Scales we've never seen before in history. That there is also going to be the movement of ideas, of images, of spiritualities, of language in a way that perhaps didn't exist a couple hundred years ago. Um, and so, when you see when when you hear ching chong or when you uh, hear the word chink, when I hear the word chink in Kenya, it's like going back in time to the 1800s a time in the U.S. where Chinese people, Chinese migrants to the U.S. or immigrants were, did not have power at all. They were poor, they were um, actively being excluded. Um, This is the Exclusionary Act. And um, that was punching down. These words are punching down. But then that's the strange thing, right? Is that these words that were used to punch down at Chinese railroad workers in the early 1800s in the U.S. by white Americans, um, those very words are now being used, are now being re-employed to punch up at mainlanders, at Chinese mainlanders who are in Kenya who yes are part of a chinese diaspora but a very different one and representative of a country that has a lot more power over uh over 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 kenya over the people who are using those words um and so it's a it's a strange thing and i don't have i think that's the only useful thing that i can say about it right now is that it is strange and that you have to hold all those things at once in your mind. Um, this reminds me of a recent political cartoon. Um, this is in the wake of news that a China Southern Airlines plane from uh, was a direct flight from China. I can't remember if it was Guangzhou or Changsha, but it came directly from China and landed in Nairobi, um, despite the fact that there was supposed to be a ban on direct flights from China, for for some time. Um so this plane sort of quietly arrived and um obviously and I think for good reason the public was outraged that um that this was allowed to happen. Technically um they, you know, the passengers were screened before coming and they were also, you know, they went through the fever gun thing when they came here and they were asked to self-quarantine which is pretty standard. It's been standard. Um, throughout the world at this point that if you are coming from an affected area um, you are highly um, suggested to uh, stay away from other people just sort of self-quarantine for 14 days so that way the incubation period has time to sort of take its course if you begin to show symptoms then you won't have already transmitted it to other people like in the place that you've landed Anyway, so this became a huge controversy um and this political cartoon came out um in the midst of this um in the midst of this public outrage and it was it depicted a coronavirus i get like a human sized <laughs> coronavirus. That its head was, like, the virus, like, the, whatever, the round thing with the thing sticking out of it, the crown sticking out of it. Um, and it was this green virus man, and he was dressed in this, like, traditional red and yellow Chinese garment, like a Manchu style. I don't even know, with the silk shoes and everything. Um, and so this corona, the, the... Uh, cartoon just shows this coronavirus walking into the airport and the person at the airport, the staff member being like, welcome to Kenya. Um, and it was um, quite popular. It got spread around, at least on Twitter, I saw quite a lot. Um, and that's just one more example. The The Chinku is sort of a linguistic example, and this is a sort of visual example of how, in this case, where certainly... It is implied that the Chinese government, that China had some kind of power over its Kenyan counterparts, and to be able to allow, you know, its planes—not its—not the government's planes, but a Chinese corporation's planes—to uh, enter Nairobi. There's obviously a power imbalance. People, Kenyan citizens, feel like they don't have any agency over even, you know, preventing. People from in, um, coming from in, uh, a country struggling with an epidemic to come into their own country, like there are power imbalances. At the same time, the way in which that is being responded to is by borrowing from, not even borrowing, just using racist tropes or that were racist that were used in a punching-down way two hundred years ago in the U.S. Um, what do you do when you use the same words to punch down at people that were, or the same words that are used to uh, punch down at people before in order to punch up in a different context? Um, I think there is probably, in order to understand that, we could probably refer to and read um writers and thinkers who have dealt with this in terms of anti-Semitism. Um, that's not my area of expertise. But certainly in China and Kenya right now, this thing that is unfolding at a really rapid pace is constantly bringing up new questions like this or new um, interfaces of um, of of power and race and... Um, Images and ideas that are sort of free flowing in between time and space. Um, So there, yeah, it's complicated. And there's definitely a lot more to be said about it and a lot more that ought to be studied about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think as we're talking about this idea of like exported racism is coming to mind, Mm -hmm. if only because like I've seen examples of this in other places where like, you know, particularly like in K-pop where like people do blackface and then you're like, where did this aesthetic come from? Because it's it's... it harkens back so closely back to like the, you know, minstrelsy in you know 1800s or whatever. And you're like, this has not come out of a vacuum. And yet, right, like it doesn't. It comes with its own set of like emotion. You still have an emotional mm-hmm. response to it. Right. Mm-hmm. You still feel attacked. Oh, yeah. um, you know, a- again, like obviously, like, you know, black folks in Korea do not have the same experience as Chinese people in East Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but at the same time, right, what we're talking about is that emotional response, which is honestly where a lot of this like where again, like I said, we said at the top of the episode. um, or a lot of the the reactions on coronavirus virus really is coming from um i i feel like a lot of like the anti the the sinophobic reaction from like you know, non-Chinese folks, obviously, to coronavirus is really just like all of, like the really nasty stuff that's coming out, all of the mm-hmm. really irrational, like some like dude getting Febrezed on like mm-hmm. a New York subway, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, it all is coming or even like some like the offhand comments that people yeah. make. It's really coming from a place of fear, yeah. um, which I feel is such an overused word when we're talking about racism. And it's a way to really flatten the nuance of what's going on. Mm-hmm. But really, it's like when... That whole sort of thing of, like, you know, oh, you can never be too careful, right? Yeah. Um, that somehow justifies all this sort of really gross behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what that points to is that, like, people, when they react to, you know, things like this, the the, the, the instinct is to not, to not to think but to just feel. Um, yeah. And I feel like, you know, as as much as there is like systemic problems uh, with racism, a lot of like, you know, lay people are just kind of like, well, this is just how I feel. This is my lived in experience. It's just my gut. Mm. Um, You know, obviously, your gut has a lot of like, you know, your gut is is colonialized. (laughs) Your gut is hurting other people. Um, And and so that doesn't change that. But at the same time, like it's really hard to speak rationally about it because people behave this way out of a, you know, a rational fear. Um, and yeah. I think we could even, you know, point this towards even the the sort of like opposite reaction that again Asian Americans are having the anti xenophobic reaction, so to speak. Um, I I don't know. I don't know about you. I mm. feel like I always get a little bit uncomfortable and little. I've I've gotten progressively more squeamish about anti-Chinese racism over the past few years, if only because I don't know. Like if you, this is a very like you know I don't know reductionist way of looking at things, but like I remember one like the um, the you know like jesse waters that like oh, that yeah. jerk on on fox news who like did the whole like chinatown <sighs> thing yeah. um and i remember like that hit uh, not a lot of anti-chinese things like hit at my gut anymore mm-hmm. but that one really did it was hard if to only watch. because it just felt so it was yeah. so hard to watch because you you saw people there that looked like and sounded like people that you knew and yeah, loved uh- um and and so i remember that that to be like one of the most you know in recent memory one of the most striking sort of examples of anti-chinese racism that i had a visceral reaction to but at the same time i remember watching that and be like well okay i mean at the same time if as chinese americans the worst racism we get is like Mm -hmm. some jerk reporter goes and like makes fun of people like we're not getting shot in the streets we're not getting you know wrongfully arrested or Mm -hmm. detained or whatever right like are things really that bad for us you know um and so like when there's this like especially like you know there's this uproar about like anti-chinese xenophobic behavior you know vis-a-vis coronavirus or like my favorite pet peeve is like when chinese when asian people complain about representation in media mm -hmm. and i'm just like this is not a life or death issue like that to me now i mean again people have strong feelings about that i just am so over it um but like at the same time you know like how do you how do you even like balance all that? How do you balance your feelings against like the the relativism of like how bad racism is for other
1: folks? Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean the way that I balance it is to as as I think about power, I think it's complicated because the Sinophobia um or just anti Chinese discrimination that has been weaponized, not weaponized, but that has been employed by the CCP as well, by the, um, Mm, Communist Party in different ways to deflect in, in, in a kind of perverse way. They are almost themselves flattening Chinese people into this uh, Mm. one thing. Um, and this is complicated by like, you know, nationalism and, um, you know, Zhonghua means Like, what is nation? What is ethnicity? Blah blah blah. Diaspora. That's very like a whole another story. But mm-hmm. it's uh, often being employed in order to deflect from things that the party may not want to uh, may not want to deal with. At the same time, and sort of stepping away from all of that, when you're sort of talking about comparing the racism that um, that Chinese and Chinese Americans, or Chinese in America and Chinese Americans might experience is perhaps not as bad as that which Black Americans experience, you know. Um, I, yeah, to one extent, I do believe that's true. Um, there are, like, you know, structural ways in which, um, Black folk in America just, you know, Yeah, They're just oppressed in a way that is systemic, Mm -hmm. in a way that is significant. Um, But I think that is, I mean, that should be a point of solidarity. There needs to be more solidarity. Through the process Mm. of solidarity, I think what we will find, of course, is those distinctions between the kinds of discrimination that different groups experience but also i think through that process we can begin to begin to see um common not common enemies but we can find the ways in which our oppression are actually the same um and for example like there are a lot of shared struggles between people like working class lower class people of all races between women of different uh, racial groups and people with different access to education uh, regional like those sorts of things I think yeah I and I, I guess in a way my logic is exactly like that which you said With you know which is like but Chinese people in Kenya have power like it's not that bad like it should be fine when I get called a cheek here because of that. Like, I, I understand that I am also leaning on that logic. Um, but I think that the forward way, like the positive forward facing way to, to deal with that or to think about that is I think the only way to, to deal with that is to, um, is to, to look for the outline of power in all of the discriminations that happen against us. And, um, And I think, and this is like a a whole separate issue, but I think within that racial discrimination um, is a lot of like um, violence between ethnic minorities in the U.S. I think I've seen a couple of really disturbing videos um, around coronavirus in, um, in the U.S. where it just, you know, Attacks on Chinese people by um, mm. other people of color, other people, POC, mm-hmm. who are Americans, you know, and like, if you're going to take that hierarchical, like who has more power here, who has less power, whose group mm. experience is worse? Like, how do you process, um, you know, a group of, of young black people accosting an elderly Chinese man? in this video that i saw i, I you can maybe mm. find it and put it in the show notes but how do you begin to process that by that way like you 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 can like you you have to sort of zoom out and again find the outline of power and all of those things and where we're not <sighs> yeah in in that case where something goes so wrong like that we have so much um anti-blackness within the Chinese community or so much um you know just racism anti-Chinese sentiment amongst amongst black people like you need to the only way is to like zoom out from all of that and and sort of find the common the the, the common source of oppression or the common you know to search positively for a solidarity otherwise mm-hmm. i think it just becomes a counting game right it just becomes like yeah um measuring oppression and then sort of counting <laughs> it up and then seeing who gets to do what in that case right, right. which is it's like complicated a, enough oppression olympics right? sort of yeah oppression olympics exactly mindset. yeah
0: yeah yeah i mean it's like it's funny cuz like having worked in um diversity you know, initiative spaces at my school, mm-hmm. um, the word unity comes up uh, and to the point that I almost have like a visceral negative reaction mm-hmm. when I hear it, just because it's it's used mm-hmm. oftentimes <laughs> oftentimes by privileged white folks uh, to kind of like, kind of, kind of erase the problem. Ah, yeah, um, yeah, to yeah. kind of say that like, oh, we're all the same. We have the same struggles. We're all human. You know, we all bleed red, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, oh, and the thing is like, I have a visceral reaction to that because it's been used to kind of like Again, to re- erase the problem, yeah. but I think what you're saying is um, is absolutely correct in the sense that like when there's radical empathy when when you're able to see that there is actually a common enemy that the problem does not not exist, but the enemy is not each other yeah. Um, in in that like, and to recognize, uh, you know, the power structures in place, and to realize that what we're looking for is not necessarily unity, um, in in the sense that that word I feel has been just so used mm-hmm. and abused, mm-hmm. uh, for the wrong, but but solidarity, yeah, yeah, um, and I think yeah, I mean, there's there's no mm-hmm. other. Otherwise, you're mm-hmm. right in the sense mm-hmm. that like there is no sort of there there is no one size fits all hierarchy that would fit in every single political and social and you know situation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, there's really only, but, but the common thread is power, and the common thread is, um, is finding a way to, to address that from our differing postures. Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, this was, this was amazing. Um, I feel like there's like there, there ought to be a part two, if only because there's so much. Like, uh, oh my goodness. No, I mean, I'm, I'm always so grateful to be able to talk to you. So, um, where can people find? I, I'm so excited that I get to say this because you're like an actual, like, legitimate journalist slash like semi-public figure in a certain media space but like where can people find you on the internet
1: um you can find me on twitter my um what is that thing called handle (laughs) is at aprzhu um that's also the url to my website um aprzhu.com to find my past work that's awesome um and (laughs) I'll also
0: link a couple (laughs) I'm just like oh basking basking in like famous person land she's so legit uh, and I'll also link a bunch of your uh, your past works on the show notes as well just because they're just so, they're so good and so uh, thank you so much for hanging out and for talking about really interesting and important things and hopefully I think, I think we'll have you, you back eventually just because there's soon. so much there's just so much so thank you so much Hey guys, it's Patricia. I hope you enjoyed that episode with April Zhu. Again, you can find her on Twitter at APRZHU, and her writing and bio is available on her website at aprzhu.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Bad Chinese Teacher or on Twitter at Bad Chinese Pod. If you're looking for me, Patricia, you can find me on Instagram at Patricia Liu and on Twitter at Patricia SQ Liu. And you can find my latest writing at my blog at blog.patricialu.net Show notes for this episode and all past episodes can be found at badchineseteacher.com New episodes for the Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast will be posted every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Alright, that's it for this week. See you next time Bye-bye